0: Hello everyone, this is uh, Stavros Yanuka. Welcome to Wise Words, a podcast where we talk to thought leaders and innovators from around the world about any and all things related to education. This episode is a conversation between me and my former boss at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore, Professor Kishore Mahbubani. Kishore has been the Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy since the founding of the school in August 2004, and he recently announced that he would be retiring uh, at the end of 2017. Kishore is a former diplomat who attained the rank of permanent secretary, that's the highest rank in the Singapore civil service, uh, at the foreign ministry, and he also served two terms as Singapore's permanent representative to the United Nations, which included a stint as president of the UN Security Council from January 2001 to May 2002. Today, Kishore is widely recognized as one of the most influential public intellectuals from outside Europe and North America. He began his engagement with the public forum as a vocal defender of Asian values. His first book, a collection of essays provocatively titled, Can Asians Think?, challenged readers to develop a broader worldview that incorporated the perspectives of non-Western civilizations, particularly those from Asia. Kishore then built on this theme in his subsequent books, Beyond the Age of Innocence, The New Asian Hemisphere, and The Great Convergence, essentially heralding the relative decline of the West and the return of Asia, and in particular China and India, to the top ranks of global powers. As someone who worked closely with him for over seven years, I can attest that Kishore possesses rare insight into contemporary Asian affairs, which he combines with a solid understanding of the West. His thinking about the long-term geopolitical implications of the reemergence of the two Asian giants have proven to be remarkably prescient. We had a wide-ranging discussion that touched on a variety of contemporary political, economic, and social issues, and discussed how education could have, and could still, better prepare people for the disruptions uh, that are being brought about by uh, the re-entry of uh, Asia's two giants uh, into the world economy. Uh, we hope you find the conversations that follow thought-provoking, and we are very open to hearing back from you on Twitter at wise underscore tweets, uh, hashtag wise pod. that's pod P-O-D. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here with Kishore Mabubani. Kishore Mabubani, welcome to Wise Words. Happy to be here. Uh, Kishore, you and I have known each other for over a decade now um, and just for full disclosure, I used to work for Kishore at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Um, you and I have had, I think, several discussions over the years uh, about the theme and the topic that you're best known for, uh, which is the reemergence of Asia as a geopolitical and cultural force uh, in the world. And just to be clear, when we speak about the reemergence of Asia, we are really talking about uh, the two powerhouses, uh, China and India. Uh, so what I want to do uh, today is explore that topic a little bit uh, more with you, and in particular talk about your thoughts and ideas on what might the impact be on, on education.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so maybe we can begin with just you giving us a, a quick summary of, mm. uh, of the thesis mm. uh, that you uh, have, have become well known for around the world.
1: Well, let me uh, begin by saying how happy I am to be here uh, at WISE and to say that this is uh, the right place, I think, uh, to talk about my main thesis. Uh, and the essential point I make all the time is that we are entering a completely new era of world history, marked by two points. Firstly, is the end of the era of Western domination of world history. But I hasten to add that the end of Western domination is not the end of the West. In fact, the world needs and wants a very strong Western civilization. But the second point, the more important point is that we're seeing the return of Asia. And the reason why I call it the return of Asia and not the rise of Asia, is because from the year one to the year 1820, for 1800 of the last 2000 years, the two largest economies in the world were always those of China and India. Yeah. So it's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off, North America took off. But it's very clear that if you view the past 200 years of world history against the backdrop of the past 2000 years mm-hmm. of world history, the past 200 years of world history has been a major historical aberration. Okay. all aberrations come to a natural end and that's what we're seeing but what's amazing is how fast all this is happening and if you want to understand the turbulence of the world today why Trump is happening why Brexit is happening it's all due out of a failure on the part of Western leaders to prepare their populations for this completely different era which is changing the lives of everyone around the planet
0: Okay, so that's, I mean, y- you say that there's, there's been a failure of, of, uh, of Western leaders to prepare mm. uh, their populations for, for mm. this changing world. Is that, to a certain extent, a failure in, uh, that's reflected in the education system potentially as well? It is uh,
1: partially uh, reflected in the uh, education system but it has to do more with a certain degree of blindness uh, that is that you find in the West, which is why, uh, in my next book, which Penguin UK is publishing uh, with the title "Has the West Lost It?" question <laughs> <laughs> yep. mark uh, I make the case that when fundamental structural changes happen in the world, the West actually has got to change and adapt these structural changes uh, in the world. For example, the one big example I, uh, I give in the book is that when I mean, you talk about the year 2001 yeah, and you talk, about Ameri- talk to Americans and say, what was the most important thing that happened in the year 2001? They say, of course, it was 9-11, the attack yeah. on America, Osama bin Laden, the collapse of the World Trade Center towers. But that's the wrong answer. The most important thing that happened in 2001 was that China joined the World Trade Organization, WTO. And that, when you introduce almost like a billion workers into the global capitalist system, that completely created a a whole new uh, uh, dynamic where you had a lot of creative destruction and lots of Western workers lost their jobs. And that's what led to Donald Trump eventually, because the the elites in Europe and America didn't tell the populations that with the entry of China into WTO, there's going to be massive changes to the world economy. Yeah. but that's one clear example of failure to prepare their populations:
0: yeah. no I, to, to be fair though I mean 911 was a, a deeply traumatic uh, event. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had an immediacy that Mm. Uh, perhaps the entry of of China into the wto mm. didn't uh, didn't have clearly if we look at you know long term trends mm. you're right mm. the entry of China into the WTO is a far mm. more significant uh, event and when historians mm. come uh, mm. to write about this period mm. uh, i'm sure that that will garner uh, mm. much more of the attention that uh, mm. that it deserves um, if we bring it back to you know, to to education, we can, you know, we can see that the the return of Asia has also had a significant impact mm-hmm. uh, on education. I mean, if we look at the numbers of Chinese and Indian and other uh, students mm-hmm. from uh, from other parts of Asia that are entering higher education mm-hmm. and dominating, in particular, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, disciplines like the sciences, like engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, what impact do you feel that that is having on uh, uh, on the world?
1: Oh, very, very profound. In fact, one of the points I always make in my writings is that uh, with the return of Asia, uh, all Asian countries who send a thank you note to the West for the success of Asia because the reason, fundamental reason why the Asian countries are succeeding now is because they finally understood Absorb and I'm implementing, you know, what I call in my writings the seven pillars yeah. of Western wisdom, and one of the key pillars of Western wisdom is Western education, and it's actually Western education that has liberated uh, many uh, Asian societies, and the examples you give of the uh, millions of Asians that have studied in uh, North American universities, European universities—that's part of the reason why they provided, in some ways, what I call the yeast. Yeah. that enable Asia oh, uh, uh, yeah. to, to, to rise. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing how generous, for example, uh, America has been uh, there are several hundred thousand Chinese and Indian students studying each year uh, in the leading uh, North American universities around all over America and in the rest of the West too. And this is a gift uh, from the West to the rest that I think is under-appreciated.
0: Yeah, no that's, I mean, the, yes, and, but I also think what's underappreciated is the degree to which the West has also benefited from, mm. from this influx of, of talent, mm. because yes, Chinese and Indians are being educated and, and other mm. Asians are being educated in Western universities, a lot of them though are staying mm. and making significant contributions to mm. science, Technology, um, engineering, the arts—in mm. ways that I think you know, the, the, uh, some of the folks behind, mm. you know, Brexit, behind Trump, behind other, mm. shall we say, nativist movements uh, that we see re-emerging mm. in the West, often underappreciate mm. significantly. So it's yes. been a two-way, yes. two-way street.
1: No, I completely agree and I, and I think uh, both, uh, I would say America and I would say especially the Anglo-Saxon countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand uh, have benefited a great deal from the best minds in Asia coming to study at the leading uh, Anglo-Saxon universities in the world. But at the same time, it is also true that there is now a political backlash Uh, and as you know, after Donald Trump became president, the number of uh, what they call call H1B1 visas has uh, diminished, Mm -hmm. and it's much harder now for Asian, or in fact any foreign graduates of uh, American universities to stay on and get jobs uh, in America. And that's actually a great pity, because that's what America needs to do now America now has to deal now with a far more dynamic stronger uh, Chinese economy. And the Chinese are very lucky they have 1.4 billion people so they can cream off the best minds in China. They have a remarkable talent pool to nurture and develop. And in the past the way America competed with China was to cream off the best talent. Mm-hmm. From the rest of the world and bring it to North American universities, and after that encourage them to stay on and work uh, uh, in America. But that is now a problem because of the political backlash that's had happened. but the political backlash has happened is another illustration of how Western leaders fail to prepare their populations yeah. for the new world that is coming and to tell them, actually, if we, if, if, if America, for example, can succeed in harvesting the best minds from China, India, Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. That makes America far more competitive, but that requires a very high degree of public education that hasn't taken place yet uh, in America.
0: What What are some of the What are some of the pieces that are uh, missing from from this public education? That, that I mean, how how could uh, people in the West have been better prepared well, for the I mean, return uh, of Asia? Well,
1: I mean, the simplest way to prepare the American people for the new realities that are coming is to tell them what is inevitable. And I'll give you one simple example of an inevi- inevitable, undeniable irreversible fact which is that China will once again have the world's largest economy it already has the world's largest economy in purchasing power parity terms since 2014 but within a decade or around there it will also have the world's largest economy in nominal terms so the reality is that America will become the number two economy in the world. But, you know, as I document in my book, The Great Convergence, when I chaired a forum in Davos on the future of American power yeah. with eminent American senators like Cocker, Chambliss, uh, a New York congresswoman, Mike Froman, the former national security advisor there, and I said, what's the future of American power? They say, oh, we'll be number one, we'll be number one, we'll be number one. So I said, is there a possibility we might become number two? And no American politician, yeah. I discovered, can have any words coming out of their mouths saying that America will one day become number two. Yeah. Because uh, if, if if they say that, it's politically suicidal in America. So if you have a situation where you have to state an... Uh, undeniable, inevitable fact, and you commit political suicide when you say that, that shows there's something fundamentally wrong in the political culture of the country.
0: Yeah, do you feel there's, there's a certain degree of historical myopia, perhaps?
1: Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's a result of the fact that the West has been so dominant for so long that it doesn't seem to realize that the world that is coming is so different from what they've experienced in the last 100, 200 years. They cannot conceive of a world in which the largest economies in the world will no longer be Western. But Asian, even today in purchasing power parity terms, the number one economy is China, Number two is United States America. Number three is India. Number four is Japan. So three out of the f- top four is- economies are already Asian.
0: You're obviously discounting the European Union as a single, uh, <laughs> single economic zone. Before which or is after <laughs> before or after it breaks up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well maybe we shouldn't go there. <laughs> we're, we're we're trending too far uh, yeah. outside the remit of education. Yes. Um, but as you know, I mean back to as, as you know, history is, is, is something of a of a passion of mine and mm. and uh, what what I've always found interesting is that when we think about history and the way that we break up the different mm. eras, it mm. is a very European centric mm-hmm. view of history. So we think of the sort of ancient classical mm-hmm. uh, period as covering mm-hmm. uh, Greece and Rome, mm. then we come to the, the dark ages. Mm. Uh, again, they were dark in Western Europe, not mm. necessarily in, uh, in, 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 in of China. the rest of the world. Um, and then you know the Middle Ages, and again yeah. that's a sort of again yeah. a very European view. Yeah. Before the you know getting to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, yeah. and again it's not to discount the importance of mm. uh, of movements like the Renaissance mm. and the Enlightenment, but I I certainly feel that the world can benefit a lot mm. more. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, in the West, if we have a more global understanding of history, uh, and we, you know, we understand that, that you know China, as you say, mm. and mm. India have been significant mm. and important forces in shaping mm. uh, history.
1: You're absolutely right. In fact, in fact, that's since you mentioned education, uh, uh, the one of the most important areas of education is education of history. Yeah, and you know I grew up in a, in a British colony in Singapore in the 1950s Yeah, and I learned a lot about English steel mills and uh, the English working classes Yeah, and even in Singapore uh, whose future was going to be obviously tied to China and India I learned nothing about the history of China, nothing about the history of India, yeah. nothing about the history of the immediate region surrounding Singapore which is Southeast Asia which is actually one of the most promising regions on planet Earth, uh, which, as you know, my my co-author and I document in the ASEAN miracle. So that uh, uh, reluctance to acknowledge that this is a very different world that is coming and therefore we have to understand China in its own terms, India in its own terms, Southeast Asia in its own terms, yeah. is something that, frankly, most Western universities have not begun, to begun doing seriously enough. Yeah. And that's something that we should encourage a great deal. But it's also true, by the way, that the journalists also, uh, in the dominant Anglo-Saxon media, are also very, very ignorant and very, very unaware of how different the world that is coming Mm -hmm. is going to
0: be. Okay, say say a bit more about that.
1: Well, I mean, to give a a simple example, uh, if you read the Anglo-Saxon media and you follow what's happening in China, the average uh, Anglo-Saxon reader is led to believe that since China was run by Communist Party in 1949 and China was run by Communist Party in 1979, and China is still run by the Communist Party in 2017, nothing has changed. Yeah, Actually, China has changed fundamentally. And even though the Communist Party remains in power, the, the, the Chinese political and economic system has changed fundamentally. I mean, to give a simple example, when I first went to China in 1980, the Chinese people could not choose where to live what to wear, where to work, and no freedom to travel, and so on and so forth. Today, the same Communist Party is in power, but there's been an explosion of personal freedoms. And the Chinese people can choose where to live, what to wear, where to work. And each year, 120 million Chinese leave China freely. And in theory, if China was still an oppressive, repressive society, 120 million Chinese would not return to China freely, but they do. So clearly, the stereotypes that that are used by the Western media to understand uh, China no longer apply to the new China that is emerging. It is true that the Chinese people don't have the kind of political freedoms that the American people have, but they have a lot of personal freedoms uh, that are new, that they are enjoying and they are relishing and as a result of that the, the the condition of the chinese people today is the best that it has ever been in chinese history and many in the west are not aware of that because all they see yeah. is mm. the same old story that the chinese communist party is running china therefore the chinese people must be unhappy
0: yeah no and again it's it's again uh, I, I think you've just illustrated the importance of understanding of, of taking a historical perspective when mm. When examining uh, the particular situation of a country or mm. a or a society, clearly China is is uh, uh, as mm. you say much freer, uh, perhaps than it has, has ever been. Mm. Maybe you know one could argue whether the 20s were, you know, were a freer period. Of course, mm. then they had other other uh, issues: the warlords, the, the civil war. And, uh, and
1: and you had signs saying no dogs and Chinese in the park in the nineteen twenties so, in Shanghai. <laughs> so uh, uh,
0: clearly, that that was a uh, you know a different uh, a different era. Um, but again, with you know with uh, with China, you know, yes, there are greater freedoms. We know, at least from an educational standpoint, there are still challenges with internal migration. Mm-hmm. Um and uh internal migrant workers uh, and their families perhaps not having mm. uh enough um I don't want to call them rights, but not being entitled essentially to benefit mm. from public services uh, because the the system hasn't been ironed out yet mm. in terms of how you know mm. how you accommodate this internal migration. But again, within that context I'm you know, I'm in agreement with you, China is not the Soviet Union. I, I had the opportunity to visit the Soviet Union in 1988 on mm. vacation. Uh, I was I was a teenager at the time. I I went under protest, <laughs> mm. but my parents assured me that it was going to be a great and wonderful experience. Um, and whilst the historical and and uh, cultural aspects of that visit were were interesting. There was very little to do outside of mm. of uh, of, uh, of the tours, and uh, you know, China is not the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, China today is is incredibly mm. uh, dynamic in uh, mm. uh, in many respects, economic, cultural, uh, and and social. Um, if if we focus again, Kishore, on on uh, you know, on China and India and and education, one thing again that we you know we can say is that you know these these countries have had a long and and deep uh, relationship with education indeed a tradition mm. of education mm. um but it's also been a tradition that's uh, you know one could describe as hierarchical and mm. and elitist uh, and perhaps you can still see evidence of that in in for example mm. the way that uh the, the Chinese Communist Party manages promotion and, mm-hmm. uh, and selection of, of cadres you can link that back to mm. the uh, uh, Imperial bureaucratic examinations and the and the mm. um, <coughs> do you see that you, do you still see that tradition mm. do you see changes in that you know in that tradition what what mm. can we uh, we expect to see in the coming? coming well, years. Yeah,
1: you're, you're absolutely right that traditional Chinese and Indian societies have been very hierarchical and that it's been very, very difficult to break down the class system in China and the caste system in India. But here the there is a big difference between China and India because in China actually one of the effects of the communist party rule and especially the rather painful cultural revolution that China went through in the 1970s mm-hmm. is that the uh, the class system is completely broken down in in China, and uh, the uh, there's a the Chinese people even at the bottom feel that they can do as well as people on the t- on the top. So China actually is having developing much more of a meritocracy, and mm-hmm. in the Chinese Communist Party, for example. Uh, it's very clear that Chinese Communist Party is becoming as meritocratic as McKinsey or as Harvard yeah. in the way it selects its future leaders and so on and so forth. India is, hasn't caught up yet. Yeah. In India, there the are some semblance of the caste system is still around uh, in, in India. But at the same time, even in India, as I document in the new Asian Hemisphere, the untouchable cast uh, in India, you know, in India, once you in the past, when you were born an untouchable, you lived an untouchable, you died an untouchable. But in the, my book, the New Asian Hemisphere, I document several cases of untouchables who had access to education, yeah. and then ended up becoming holding senior positions in the Central Bank of India, becoming presidents of universities, and so on and so forth. So this is a gift of Western education uh, to Asia, because the Western education has always emphasised promotion on merit, selection on merit. And and so many of the uh, uh, bottom classes are able to take advantage of it. And in India, by the way, if you look at the success of the IIT graduates from uh, India, They are among one of the most amazing group of people in on the entire planet Earth. If you go to Silicon Valley, for yep. example, I was going to say many of the leading corporations in in Silicon Valley are successful as a result of graduates from IIT, uh, IITs in India migrating to to California. So yep. I would say it, it is uh, <clears throat> uh, overall a good news story that we are seeing, and in fact, in in, in my next book. As the West lost it, uh, I give a lot of data that shows that, as a result of the spread of the uh, Seven Pillars of Western Wisdom, for example, global poverty, absolute poverty, which used to be 60% of the world's population in 1970, is now down to less than 10%. If you look at uh, life expectancy, it has gone up dramatically if you look at the global middle class populations uh, the total global middle class population is exploding from 1.8 billion in 2010 to 3.2 billion in 2020 and reaching 4.9 billion in 2030 which means by 2030 more than half the world's population will enjoy middle class living standards so we actually in terms of improving the human condition no generation of human history has done as much as our generation has done yeah. so in the last 30 years.
0: No, you're right. I mean that the objectively speaking, hmm. you know, we should all be celebrating c- celebrating, and feeling really, you know, really good about uh, unfortunately the, the state the, of the, the world, the, we're, but we're not.
1: Because the doom and gloom of the West, <laughs> <laughs> which hasn't adjusted to, blame, to the new huh? world, is is, yeah. is is polluting the atmosphere of the world. And that's what we, we have to persuade the Western populations that actually the world is not coming to an end, that in fact the world is going to get better and better, especially for people uh, in at the bottom and people in developing countries.
0: But I think I think part of the problem, and, and th- this is an interesting um, uh, point I think that you've just made because it touches on a couple of, uh, of, of important issues I think. Um, the first, I mean if we talk about meritocratic systems, and and Western education being being premised essentially on, on meritocracy. Mm. What we've been observing the last, I would say, you know, few decades mm. is that in fact the system is becoming less meritocratic mm. because we we are taking a a very narrow view of you know of, of meritocracy, meaning that, you know, if you do well in the exams, if you get good grades, mm you know, yes, you have access to, uh, to, to the top uh, educational institutions of, of, you know, the U.S., of, of, of Europe. Um, the problem is, as we know now, is that your performance, your academic performance, is very often determined by the circumstances of your birth. You know, how wealthy yeah. your family is, how well educated your parents are, and, and we're not, in the West at least, mm. um, seeing enough effort put mm. to bring uh, those less fortunate yeah. up along with, uh, with the uh, upper middle classes. Mm. And I think it's this erosion, to a certain mm. extent, of, of yeah. this educational meritocracy mm. that is also fueling some of the doom and gloom. Yeah. So yeah. people feel stuck.
1: Yeah. But I think it's important here to make a distinction between, say, what's happening in America where unfortunately, uh, if, you, if you happen to come from a very wealthy family, you're right, you get access to the best education from uh, pre uh, school all the way right away all the way to university. Yeah. But in, in, in for many Americans, especially those are the, uh, the, the poor ones, they don't get access to good preschool education and that as you know, if you're deprived of good preschool education, yep. Your disadvantage for the rest of your mm-hmm. life, but but contrast to be fair, in let's say we go to the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, Europe is doing a better job. Uh, That's Finland, right. Finland, uh, yeah. Denmark, uh, Sweden, mm-hmm. Norway are doing a very very good job in in preschool education. Yeah. In fact, they provide the model that Singapore is learning from. Uh, mm-hmm. In 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 some ways, so you know it's it's important to give a uh, a nuanced view yeah. uh, of this. Uh, the the difference being that in the past. It was uh, one of America's greatest strengths was that anybody in America could make it. Now I think there's a perception that uh, actually there are all kinds of class barriers uh, to doing well in America today. So America has got to sort of redefine or redevelop its meritocratic system all over again.
0: I'm I'm glad you mentioned Singapore. Hmm. You're, You're... you're a product of Singapore, a beneficiary mm. of Singapore. Um, Singapore is often held up as uh, as one mm. of the outstanding examples uh, of the role that education can play in uh, lifting uh, a society and a community up from mm. third world to first, which was, I think, the title mm. of uh, of mm. one of uh, Singapore's founding fathers' mm. books. Mm. Mm. Um, Sili Kuan Yew. Kuan, Kuan Yew, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I think Singapore is, uh, you know, I, I, when Singapore turned 50 on August uh, 9th, 2015, yep. uh, I wrote an outrageous article in the Huffington Post uh, that said that not since human history began had any society lifted the stand- living standards of its people as successfully, as comprehensively, and as quickly as Singapore had done so in in, in 50 years. And that article actually got 400,000 views. So I thought out of 400,000 views, 10,000 would disagree with me, or 1,000 would disagree with me, or 100 would disagree with me, or one would disagree with me. (laughs) No one did, which is surprising, (laughs) which is astonishing. So what Singapore has done, actually has been quite remarkable. So what we need to understand is why has Singapore Uh, succeeded so well and I tell the students at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy where I'm dean the reason why Singapore has succeeded so well is because of a three-point formula uh, uh, which is captured by the acronym MPH M stands for meritocracy P stands for pragmatism H stands for honesty and I've also told every student at Lee Kuan Yew School that if they go home and implement MPH their societies would be as successful as, as Singapore is so the Singapore the secret of Singapore's success can actually be shared uh, with the rest of the
0: world yeah and it, and and from my my knowledge of of Singapore that the mph formula hmm. permeates through hmm. the education system in fact hmm. yeah, and, absolutely and yeah. and the education system in Singapore doesn't shy away from hmm. values hmm. You know, there are civic values that it mm. is hoping to impart mm. uh, and it makes a very explicit effort to, mm. um, to convey those values to, mm. uh, to, to a population whereas we see that a lot of other uh, education mm. systems around the world in, in the developed world mm. tend to shy away from that they take mm. what I would call a more, shall we say relativist approach to, mm. uh, to values wanting to leave that issue to the family or, mm-hmm. uh, or, or to the sort of cultural milieu. Mm-hmm. But Singapore, I think, makes a very explicit effort to, mm-hmm. to convey certain values, including... Uh, uh, honesty. Honesty, but also uh, tolerance and, mm-hmm. and multiculturalism and, and acceptance yeah. of, uh, yeah. of its multicultural, multi-faith uh, character.
1: Yeah. You're right. I mean, there uh, the, are the many aspects of the Singapore story that are quite miraculous. And uh, one of them is the fact that the British left behind a string of uh, multiracial, racial multi-ethnic colonies all around the world, Guyana in South America, Cyprus in yep. Europe, Sri <laughs> <laughs> Lanka in South Asia, uh, Fiji in South Pacific, Singapore in uh, Southeast Asia. And the only one on the list that actually did not suffer multi-ethnic str- strife was Singapore. And, and that's in, in some ways a result of a very, uh, what DPM Taman said in an interview with St. Garland University. It's a result of uh, continuous intervention on the part of the Singapore government to ensure that you created environments where different ethnic groups interacted with each other. For, for, each other. for example, in housing bought flats, and about 80 to 90% of the population of Singapore lives in ho- public housing. And we ensure that in every housing block, uh, uh, apartment block, you have a representation of all the races, which is quite remarkable. So, you never live in any kind of ethnic ghetto anywhere in in Singapore. But if you didn't have that kind of uh, decisive intervention, you would have ended up with ethnic separation, which is what happens in in other societies. So, the Singapore experiment actually has been very bold and very interventionist and actually very little understood. By the rest of the world.
0: Well, maybe maybe we can uh, we can have another uh, discussion specifically on that um, at at some future date. Um, Kishore, I think we're we're coming up to the to the end of of, uh, of our discussion. I I just want to give you now the opportunity to maybe say something about the the book that's coming out, mm. uh, your new book that's coming out uh, mm. in a few months. Yeah. And and maybe uh, tell people how they can. Uh, Mm. Uh, they can learn more about yeah. you follow you on social mm. media what's the best mm. way to uh mm. to to uh, track what you're you're thinking mm. and and uh and writing
1: thank you well i i'm i, I do have a website www.mabuwani.net and i have a twitter account and facebook and uh linkedin yeah <laughs> i have all the usual uh social media i guess openings yeah. <laughs> Uh, But the key point I want to emphasize at the end is that uh, there's a lot of pessimism in the world today. And I actually uh, want to market optimism in this pessimistic world. And that's the reason why I came out with this book called Has the West Lost It? Uh, which will be published by Penguin UK in London in April 2018. And the main thesis of the book is that the West can also do as well as the rest. But just as the rest learned from the West, uh, the seven pillars of Western wisdom, the West may now need to learn from the rest. Yeah. What is the value of these seven pillars of Western wisdom? For example, the, the first pillar is free market economics. And the reason why China has become the most successful economy in the world is because it has embraced uh, Western free market economics. So And and so China is today ready to sign free trade agreements with any country. And paradoxically, 30 years ago, it was the United States that was pushing free trade agreements, and yep. China was resisting it. And now the world has turned upside down, and China is pushing free trade agreements, and America is resisting it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been a dramatic turnaround in the world so the critical thing is to actually in one way or another try to educate western populations yes you have to make structural adjustments when the world changes but you can make the adjustments and you can do very well because at the end of the day the uh, asian middle class populations are going to explode just in this decade the Asian middle-class uh, population is going to grow from 500 million in 2010 to 1.75 billion in 2020, yep. an increase of three and a half times in 10 years. This creates tremendous uh, opportunities for Western biz- businesses, and many of them are taking uh, advantage of it. So there are yeah. lots of opportunities in the world today that the West can take advantage of. But to do that, the West has got to go through some serious Uh, self-reflection number one of the mistakes that it has made and I document some of the mistakes that the West has made and then look at the world uh, globally uh, in a kind of a big picture holistic kind of way and realize there's still tremendous number of opportunities for Western societies and I hope that by reading my book uh, Has the West Lost It? the West will not Will lose not it. lose it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: they'll, <laughs> they'll rediscover uh, their confidence. Yeah. I think that's uh, uh, certainly a hope that we uh, that we share. Uh, Mababani, thank you for your wise words.
1: My pleasure. Happy to be here.